Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 16, Super Fly, 1972! Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the version found on Voodoo.com for $9.99. This version has a new Warner Brothers logo and a different credit wrap-up, but otherwise it is the same. If you press play on your DVD using whatever version you have now and on your Voodoo now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Gordon Park Sr. told a story to PBS that his wife pushed him to finance his son's project, Superfly, which had only a 45-page script because it was his turn to direct his own movie. Park Sr. wrote a check and handed it to his son and admitted he did not think he would ever see the money again. Well, he did see that money again. In fact, Park Sr. made a lot of money off of this movie, and it is largely due to his son, Gordon Parks Jr. One of the things that you have to prepare yourself for is a lot of walking and a lot of driving. Like everything, there's two things going on in film. On the cover of it, this is New York City. The fact is most people walk everywhere. There's also a lot of driving, and that's mainly to show off the status of Priest's car, which we'll go to later. The real reason why we're constantly watching people around and have slow conversations is, to be honest, a lot to do with that 45-page script. Check out the Shabazz sign in the background. According to the Nation of Islam, Shabazz was an old prophet from Mecca who led his people, the tribe of Shabazz, into Africa. Malcolm X changed his last name to Shabazz right before he died. This story is about a priest who wants to do the opposite. He wants to leave his community, but the struggle is just the same. So there's going to be a lot of contradictions in Superfly that we'll get to all eventually. In very general terms, a screenplay should be about a minute of screen time per page. So if you have a 90-page script, then you should be within an hour and a half of screen time. Superfly script was 45 pages, so to fill the time, we get lots and lots of shots of people just walking places. In this case, Parks is building an environment that you do not want to miss, so this serves a third purpose. This was shot in Harlem and in other black neighborhoods in New York City. Pay close attention to this and to the foot race, which you'll see soon. You'll see not just a broken down city, but a destroyed city. You would think that New York was bombed during the Vietnam War. Check out this mural, which depicts African-Americans as the ruling class and the people of Egypt during the ancient world. You will also see the ank sign on the wall. It looks like a cross with a handle and represents eternal life. Furthermore, it represents the power of the Pharaoh to give life and to take it away. In the next scene, you'll see Priest use the ink to snort cocaine. We're walking, we're walking, we're walking. I'm sure you notice the junkies stand by the high-life neon light. 
into the darkness we will go. And then the angst symbol will show up. Ha-ha. And here's Ron O'Neill, who wrote a wave with Superfly, Superfly TNT, the sequel, and performed on TV for the next 30 years. Unfortunately, he was stereotyped after Superfly and found good roles afterwards hard to come by. So Priest, wearing the ink symbol, and what does he do with the symbol for eternity, right? Snorts cocaine. Notice the Egyptian and quasi-African artifacts behind him. And this is going to be Polly Niles as Cynthia. It's her only acting credit, and she breaks a lot of boundaries with it. To be nude in bed, that's one thing. To be nude in this bed, and you know what I mean, it's another thing. And to be this nude in bed with a black man. In 1972, this was illegal in most states and would get you and the black man hung in half of those. Just the way her legs are opened is absolutely scandalous. There are two glasses on the mantle. One is half empty and the other one is almost empty. And this represents how Priest looks at his life. If he had a glass full or at least one glass half full, then we could have an argument. But he can't have one here because he's as empty as the wine glasses in his house or her house. This is Cynthia's place. The moral abuse on his soul is too much for this job. Whitey tidies. The foot race is coming up and you should really not pay attention to the race itself, just to the surroundings. You see how his belt is mimicking a penis here. That's a nice way of saying he's hung. There's an animal print on that pillow she has. You'll see these nods to Africa throughout the film, but her apartment is where you see most of it. There was a huge move in the black community in the 60s and 70s to introduce African heritage and art into black American society. It is strange that we see most of this type of stuff in her apartment. The 70s is when you had African Americans reject Anglo names like Chris and John or Martin and go for names that were more unconventional like Darnell or Laurent. There's a great book about that. I think it's the first chapter of Freakonomics. Notice the city looks like shit. This is two years after the French Connection. That was the film that was the first to really shoot New York City like the trash heap that it was. There is trash, literally trash everywhere. The city is decayed. There's no hope in sight. And when you look at where the two junkies walk, what does that tell you? What do you see? When when stores are open, what do those stores say? What are they? I saw a wholesale cigar shop, discount shops, a paint shop that alludes to color. There are no real businesses in black neighborhoods, only storefronts and mom and pops. There is no industry. There are no blue collar jobs. It's all service. And this is an economical problem the African-American community has had for pretty much the history of America, which is no one wants to invest in them as a working class except as slaves. So when you hear Superfly or Eddie talk about the white man and what the white man is doing or whatever. This isn't a bunch of rich lawyers raised in Queens trying to free a black athlete for killing his wife. This is a real experience that they have witnessed throughout their life and the life of their parents and grandparents. They are poor. They have always been poor. They will always be poor. Unless they can tap into the one revenue stream in this destroyed city, that's their way out. That's Priest's way out anyway. And it's his way of the white-dominated power structure and that's why he gets to drive this car 
which is an enormous status symbol. And that's why he's got the hat and the fine clothes and the fine women. According to Wikipedia, which we know is never wrong, this is a 1971 Cadillac Eldorado that has been customized. Supposedly it was owned by a real pimp who plays a pimp in the film, which I'll point out to later. The customizations were made to make it look similar to a Bentley or a Rolls Royce, and it is known as the first pimpmobile. As a result, Superfly started a customization fad in the African-American community to pimp out their vehicles. This continues to this day. Why are we watching Priest Drive? You guessed it. A 45-minute script. 45-page script. Still sequence photographed by Gordon Parks Jr. That's an amazing sequence we'll see in about an hour. These shots of the ghetto are tough to watch because they're so true. It's not like Parks destroyed these buildings and then grabbed a camera. This is the real deal. And filming it is a double-edged sword. Until Sweetback, Sweet Sweetback's badass song, and Superfly, these destroyed neighborhoods, they weren't shown at all. You had these clean guys on film. Sidney Poitier in In the Heat of the Night, for instance. Black actors operated in a white world, and it was a clean world. This is not clean. This is bad. This is very bad. No white person would live here. Right? No wasp, for example. And there were great concerns in the black community that Superfly and black exploitation films in general really glorified this type of living, right? Poverty porn. And they glorified the ghetto. And how was the black community going to make anything better if they glorified something that was helping destroy their community? Pimps, ghettos, drugs. You dig? All right, now let's check out the foot chase. That's a bedpost. Use whatever you can get your hands on, right? If you're shit poor, you're not going to buy a truncheon. Look at the garbage cans and the trash. There's trash in the street. The sidewalk itself is filthy. Running with the camera is disorienting, but I'm not sure if they could get all their permits for filming. They may have had to do a guerrilla style for a lot of these shots. And look at all the crap everywhere. There's a back lot that looks like it's from Berlin in the 1940s. Check out the graffiti on the walls. And then, you know, caviar, berge. Haute Couture words. Not sure if you'd normally find it in the ghetto. It's kind of ironic. If you've ever seen Live and Let Die, the James Bond film, there's a shot in that that looks similar to this. The space in that shot here, look, it looked like there used to be a building in between those two other buildings, and it simply doesn't exist anymore right here. And there's also no money to invest in new buildings or a new face front, so the rubble just stays like it's post-war London. There's an impressive jump coming over here that O'Neill did himself. Right here. He goes over the low part of the fence. O'Neill does a Gene Kelly. Pow! And so we go from a dingy hallway to a dingy street, to a filthy backlot alley, and now to an apartment. Notice the African-American shield on the wall. Looks like something that you'd find in Zulu or Shaka Zulu. See the fire hazard of an electrical mess on the wall, and if you're paying attention, you'll see that this family is sleeping on the floor of a kitchen, a mother and four kids. And if 
that doesn't want to make you cry, then you're inhuman. There's an amplifier there next to the stove, which is open to provide heat. And there's some sort of musical instrument on the left in a case. Chances are daddy knows how to play and possibly plays for a part-time job. But look at the action in the scene. Priest takes his cash, and what does he really need to do with that cash? He needs to give it to this poor woman and her kids. But does he do that? No, because drug dealers do not exist to help people. They exist to take advantage of the poor, and that's a huge criticism of this film. And if you backed it up a bit, you'd also see a can of Quaker oats in the kitchen, so the white man is making money off the black man, as always. There's a silver lining to that, though. Quakers were always against slavery. They thought good Christians should do their own work. Now contrast that apartment with five human beings living in a kitchen. And by the way, the landlord of that whole building, he's a white man making thousands per week, right? Contrast that to priests' luxurious living quarters here. And this reminds me a lot of Charles Bronson's apartment, Death Wish. And he was a successful architect. There's also a bow and arrow on the wall next to the door. So Priest is a hunter. And he is a reader if you take a look at his bookshelf. And in this scene is the plot. The bald dude is Fat Freddy, who is one of 50 of Priest's street dealers. Businessinsider.com has listed the price of 10 grams of cocaine or less at $750 in 1982. If we roll that back to 1972 and take into account inflation of about 50% over that 10-year period, then 10 grams of Coke was probably worth in the neighborhood of $350 to $400 per 10 grams. For a poor black kid in Harlem, that's tough scratch to come by, even for a fun weekend. That's a house payment for most upper-class families back then, So just be cognizant of the value here. Coca-Colas were 10 cents. A nickel got you a phone call, not a quarter like in the 80s when I grew up. And if Priest has 50 dealers making one deal a day, then Priest is making $17,500 a day. Now that seems a huge stretch, but even if that is in a week, then Priest is making 70 grand a month, 840,000 a year. That is huge for a guy in Harlem. And all of a sudden, you start to understand the economics of this situation. That was well over a million back then, closer to two. He should be buying his own building in Harlem, driving a Rolls Royce. He should be paying a bodyguard. But we'll ignore that for now and just move on with the premise of the story. Since the beginning of time, Hollywood only had five images of African Americans. Uncle Tom, the coon, the tragic mulatto, the mammy, and the brutal buck. These were the only representations allowed, and the mere image of these stereotypes served to enslave blacks just as much on screen as they were oppressed off screen. The Uncle Tom was named after the first time we see a black character on film, and that's in Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1905 who's actually played in blackface by a white actor. Since then, Uncle Tom has the meaning of an exceedingly subservient person. So to be called an Uncle Tom in a black community is an insult. It means you're doing what the white man wants gleefully because effectively you're siding with him. There was also the coon, 
Lacoon is comedic tool. He's a buffoon. He's an idiot. And there's two types of coons. The Piccaninny, which was an amusing little childlike buckwheat in The Little Rascals, and the Uncle Remus, who is a simpleton who understands and accepts his fate in the white system. Uncle Remus in Disney's Song of the South is the best example of this. You also have the tragic mulatto, which is a white person who is ruined because it is discovered they have a drop of black blood or more. The mammy, who is a big, fat, cantankerous woman who is a maid or a cook or someone like that. Hattie McDaniel got an Oscar for playing a mammy and Gone with the Wind. There's even a type of mammy called the Aunt Jemima, who are Toms in the White Household. The brutal black buck is, of course, the antagonist, the rapist, the black male causing all of the trouble. So you'll see that Superfly reinvents the stereotype, starting with the brutal black buck, and that's what Priest is, or rather, he's turning that stereotype on its head. Instead of being the antagonist, he's being the protagonist, or at least that's the idea on the face of it. Fat Freddy is going to be the coon. He's the comedic element who's always smiling. Suffice it to say that most films in the American marketplace are written by Anglos, directed by Anglos, shot by Anglos, and are starring Anglos. Not only that, but if you go behind the camera, you'll find most of the Cree is Anglo, and that's just how it's been in Hollywood and the East Coast Machine, as it were. That doesn't really have a name. Superfly focuses on this world reflexively, meaning we get a peek into it, even though it's not necessarily on screen. It's commenting on it without really saying something directly to it. When is the last time you saw an Anglo on screen? It's worth it to ask. Should have been about 10 minutes. And in the gambling scene, there's not one Anglo. It's 100% black in front of the camera and mostly behind it for this film. Black exploitation is defined in Wikipedia as an ethnic subgenre of the exploitation film that emerged in the United States in the early 1970s. The films which received a backlash for stereotypical characters are among the first in which black characters and communities are the heroes and subjects of film and television rather than sidekicks or victims of brutality. The genre's inception coincides with the rethinking of race relations in the 1970s. Very good. Wikipedia also goes on to say that black exploitation films were originally aimed at urban African American audience, but the genre's audience appeal soon broadened across these racial and ethnic lines. Hollywood realized the potential profit of these expanding audiences with black exploitation films. And Junius Griffin, who was the head of the NAACP and an ex film publicist, coined the term black exploitation. And the first films with the description are Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Shaft, which were both released in 1971, the first by Melvin Van Peebles and the second by Gordon Parks Sr. Sweetback is an important milestone in several ways, but one of them is that it breaks with tradition and the short history of black leading men. I don't want to disparage Sidney Poitier or Harry Belafonte in any way, but their characters are rather rigid in their moral 
code, if you see what I mean. They're always right, and sexually, they're always subdued. They're not really a threat. But if you see Sweetback, that guy, he's a sexual threat. I don't mean that he's a rapist. That's not what I mean. I mean he's a sexual being. Shaft and Superfly are on his heels, and Sweetback beats the shit out of white cops and gets away with it. And it's not because he's a good guy and they're the bad guy. He gets away with it because the audience wants him to. We shouldn't think about these films as having no controversy in the black community, that they're just accepted. The NAACP hated Superfly. They thought it reinforced all these stereotypes that whites had of African Americans. Sweetback and Superfly were these black bucks that were turned on their head. They were brutal in a different way, in an empowered way, but they were bucks nonetheless. And unfortunately, black women come off pretty bad in Sweetback and Superfly. They're little more than whores. The characters are basically pimps, and those films glorified pimps. Is that something that we need to be doing? When you watch New Jack City, who do you side with? I side with Ice-T, but that's different. I'm white. If I were black, I'd probably side with Wesley Snipes. Priest's idea here developing the plot is to take the 300000 and get 30 keys of coke, for which they sell for a million. Priest then wants to get out of the business forever. This means that one kilo of coke is $30,000. There is a thousand grams in one kilogram. So each gram of coke is worth $30. Multiply that by 10 because there's 10 grams in a bag and you're at $300. And that is, strangely enough, on the low end of the guesstimate I gave you earlier. So all the economics seem to be right about where they need to be for just a little bit of half-assed internet research. Let's compare that to some real economics. The only movie to earn more than Superfly's $6.4 million was Shaft, which brought in $7 million at the box office the year before. There is a very common notion of black films, white profits, and if you follow that line of thinking, you're essentially giving in to the man. Lots of black exploitation films are financed by white producers. There's no doubting it. There's no denying it. But a lot of those films weren't. And Superfly was one of those films. So this is black all around, just like Sweetback. A white producer bought it for sure. But you know, Superfly did have a white producer, Sigismund Short, Warner Brothers. And he got the biggest payout when Superfly cleared $4 million in profit, to be sure. There was no advance payment to the actors or most of the film crew. Everyone had to wait until the film came out to get a percentage. So when it hit, it hit big. But after sure, you could argue that Curtis Mayfield was the biggest winner. He owned his own music studio. He wrote his own music. He owned his own publishing house. So when Superfly and Freddy's dead hit the airwaves and holy shit, are you ready? They both moved a million copies each and the soundtrack moved a colossal 12 million copies. Folks, come on. Curtis Mayfield probably walked out more money than Warner Brothers. And that's black power. We're driving, we're driving, we're driving, and I want you to put yourself into 1972 if you can for a minute. There's not a single senior black executive any major studio in Hollywood. And out of the 70-plus companies that belong to the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, not a single member was black, and not a single company that was a member was owned by a black investor. Most unions were all white. There were no black cinematographers in the camera union or engineers in the sound union. 
There were over 14,000 movie theaters in America in 1972, and less than 20 were owned by black businessmen. Things were so bad in Hollywood that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission held hearings in Hollywood in 1969 and found, quote, clear evidence of discrimination, unquote, in the movie industry. And think about this, folks. This is during the Nixon administration. The Justice Department took evidence from the EEOC and started to file prosecutions against a lot of these companies and organizations because none of them would hire anyone of color at all. When as a whole, Hollywood agreed to hire up until 20% of their roster was black in two years, the lawsuits were dropped. But as you can imagine, that 20% never happened. When you look at a shot like this, it makes you think about permits. My son and I were watching Reservoir Dogs the other day, and I'm just certain that most of that film was shot without permits. This looks like the same shit to me. It's so gritty. Some of it looks like it's over the shoulder. It's guerrilla filmmaking. And you know the camera has to weigh a thousand pounds. And that guy's got it on his shoulder the whole day. We're driving, we're driving, we're driving. So this was a movie that was made by black capitalists who never before had invested in film. Most of the crew was black or Puerto Rican. Most of them had experience because they worked for Third World Cinema Corporation, which Ossie Davis founded in 1971. The entire purpose of Third World Cinema was to train and apprentice more minorities in film. We're driving, we're driving. When you get a chance, look up to the lyrics of the song, Pusher Man by Curtis Mayfield. It's pretty amazing. Think of it as a kind of dark and twisted Mr. Tambourine Man. Now, this scene coming up, I have to think really hard on this one. I don't know if I've seen anything like it until Goodfellas. Is that scene in Goodfellas when Ray Liotta takes Lorraine Bracco on a first date? It's this long dolly shot. It actually starts out on the street and then goes into a around a car and across the street and into a club and through the restaurant and they sit down and that, that shot is strangely reminiscent of this. And I'm trying to think of another shot in another movie where there, there must have been dozens of them, but only that one stands out to me. That's the one that I want to emphasize. I think that shot in Goodfellas comes from Superfly. The guy who briefly uh, shook hands with Priest in a white suit, that was KC, the real pimp who lets Parks use his car in a movie if if he could be in the movie, you'll see him a little bit better later. If you believe the internet, he later said the car was confiscated by the IRS in the 1980s. There's actually a lot of stuff like that going on. There's a lot of double work going on. Nate Adams was a costume designer and a lot of people took notice of his work in Superfly for obvious reasons. He also plays a dealer in a later scene and tons of independents do that. Everyone gets a turn for bit parts. Tarantino plays guys in films so he doesn't have to cut a check to somebody else. It's why he played Mr. Brown in Reservoir Dogs, for instance. I think producer Scott Mosier played three or four parts in Clerks. It's smart. It's smart filmmaking. Now notice the interracial audience. Some hope is going on here, right? That's what films are, hopes and fears of the time in which it was created. Everyone's having a good time. Curtis Mayfield was famous before Superfly, but he hit it huge with the Superfly soundtrack. He's had an impressive career ever since. He came from the Impressions, and he did songs for films before. 
He did Lilies of the Field, which starred Sidney Poitier. And he moved from the early civil rights movement in the 60s to the Black Pride movement of the 70s. He's known as a great guitarist. And actually, Rolling Stone magazine consistently placed him in the top 100 guitarists of all time. He's been inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And what I remember about him in Superfly, and every time I watch Superfly, is what strikes me is that he's grinning. He's actually smiling for pretty much the entire performance. And this is a dark film. This scene is in a dark setting. Obviously, Mayfield is a dark man. But when you see Mayfield smile, it's a bit infectious. It's like he's selling his song with his smile. Everyone in the audience is having a good time. Even Priest is smiling when he comes to the door. Fat Freddy is smiling. So this is the one scene of hope. Mayfield is injecting hope into the scene. And we hope that Fat Freddy's going to, in fact, do this. And he's going to make this deal with Priest. And Priest will get out of the biz. Not Fat Freddy. Eddie. Now, whether or not this does happen, well, we're not sold on that just yet. This, this isn't a Hollywood movie, after all. Not completely. This is Julius Harris here playing Scatter, and he should look very familiar to you because he played T. He, the hitman in Live and Let Die, the James Bond film that came out the year after Superfly in 1973. And that's important because in Live and Let Die, you can't just get any bigger than that, a James Bond film. And it's Roger Moore's first film, and they're pulling out all the stops. And Julius Harris is in Superfly, and he's in Live and Let Die playing the hitman, Teehee. That's not an accident. And Yafat Kodo plays Kananga, the straight-laced Sidney Poitier-like politician who you find out later has a street persona named Mr. Big. And all of this is wrapped inside and out by black exploitation. So Shaft, Sweetback, Superfly, we're so big, it affects James Bond. Think about that. That's crazy. And I'll never forget him because he played the inspector in the taking of Pelham 123 and a huge punchline for Walter Matthau that centers around, guess what? Race. He was also in King Kong. Great actor. Ron O'Neill has just perfect hair. The interesting part to this is you find out that Scatter did what Priest wants to do. He's gotten out of the biz. It always seemed to me that this is a bit inconsistent of the film for Priest to go to an imposter who did essentially what he wants to do. I mean, Priest threatens Scatter and things get very uncomfortable between the two of them. It seems like Priest would want to have more respect for someone who has attained the goal that he wants to attain. But then again, this is a guy who wants to pimp out the wives of his workers, so his cash flow isn't interrupted. Things don't always flow right in this movie. There are some script issues, continuity errors. There's some awkward acting, like in Priest's apartment. There are bumps in the road. This is not a perfect picture, and I don't think that it ever claimed to be. Roger Ebert does not have a review of this film, but Odie Henderson did a review of Superfly 2018, and I'm not going to talk about that film or anything about it. I just wanted to bring it up or something that Henderson said about Superfly 1972. One thing that stood out was Ron O'Neill objecting to the use of cocaine in this film. I don't know how many 
times people snort coke in this film, but we're a little over half an hour in. I think every character that has a speaking role in this film has sniffed coke. And O'Neill didn't like this. He thought that it showed people enjoying cocaine and that would roll negatively. The audience would probably have a different opinion of the actors in real life. And some of the audience would see that kind of like smoking was seen in pictures. It's cool. It's something to do. It's hip. I think all of those are valid concerns. I think that we should pay attention to what's in films. I think that most people don't see them like they're meant to be seen. Superfly is an anti-drug movie. It's an anti-crime movie. And yet when you see it, it doesn't hit you that that's what it is. It looks like it glorifies crime on the face of it, kind of like the Godfather. And that's what a portion of the black population was afraid of. And at the same time, I also don't believe in censorship. I think the MPAA is a joke. The entire rating system is a sham. You should see a great documentary about it called This Film Has Not Yet Been Rated. There's a wonderful director by the name of Kimberly Pierce, and if you haven't seen Boys Don't Cry or Stop Lost, you should absolutely see them. And Pierce talks in the film, the documentary, This Film Has Not Yet Been Rated, that the MPAA objected to Hillary Swank wiping off Chloe Savini's cum off her upper lip in a shot after eating her out. Now, that shot was cut out. It's not in the film. Boys don't cry. But they had the clip in the documentary, so you get to see it. This film has not yet been rated. And I could barely see it. I had to look hard. I had, I had to try to look for it. And yet, the same film has Hillary Swank's brains ejected out of her skull after she is brutally raped. So I ask you, what the fuck is that about? That is censorship. That's what it does. It confuses the audience in the pursuit of morals. So I am anti-MPAA. I think most parents know when they're going to a Pixar film what they're getting into, and I think most parents know not to take their children to see Boys Don't Cry. And I think censorship of Superfly would just kill it. Absolutely kill it. We need to make our own decisions about what we watch and what we show our kids, and we need to take responsibility for it and not blame good directors like Kimberly Pierce or Gordon Parks Jr. for that matter. One thing I'm sure you've noticed is the N-word flying around a lot. Now, I'm not going to get into a history of the N-word. Obviously, it's used pretty loose here, and a lot of people were not ready for it. Black listeners often react to the term differently depending on whether it's used by white or black speakers. It matters, and it obviously matters what race the speaker is who's using it, but not always. Context is also important. Quentin Tarantino has taken a lot of heat for using the N-word in pretty much all of his films, and he uses it himself in Pulp Fiction. However, if you look at Tarantino's body of work, I would think a reasonable person would agree that Tarantino is not a racist. Therefore, the cross-race use of the word can be used, but again, context matters greatly. Gene Hackman used the N-word in The French Connection, and he had fights with William Friedkin about it. He didn't want to say it, he didn't want to have anything to do with it, but Friedkin was trying to paint Popeye Doyle in a certain light, and that word was part of the character. Obviously, intergroup usage is controversial, too. Samuel L. Jackson has been taken to task for it. A few years ago, it was on the Variety podcast with Christopher Tapley. He was asked all about it, and he basically said people need to calm down. I would say the guiding rule in using the word is don't use it, unless you're using it in a specific way in the expression of art, which does not take away the derogatory history of the word. It's a horrible and demeaning word. Don't soften it up, 
but don't use it to describe someone as demeaning. And because of that, the, that word, or rather the use of the word, because of the fact that it portrays drug dealers and pimps driving nice cars and living in nice apartments and getting laid by beautiful black and white chicks, this whole environment that Superfly lives in, because of all of this, the film was really singled out for the derision by the film industry itself, by film critics, and by black organizations, not just the NAACP. Again, you should catch Mayfield's lyrics here. He's talking about being out on his own and being his own man. It's like this song was made for this scene. It's pretty dope. No pun intended. I read in an article that Superfly was the, quote, target of a collective fury and the prime example of degenerate black images on film. When the film is discussed, the dominant interpretive modes consequently have been ideological, unquote. What do we see when we watch Superfly? We see what some authors call, quote, ghetto authenticity. They see urban decay, a bleak vision. This film ends on a sour note. This is three years after the French Connection, mind you. William Friedkin made what was then and is now as highly regarded as the first film to show New York in this horrible style, like a festering sore. You just look at the background here. Don't look at the pattern jacket, the fur coats. Look at the brick and the concrete in the background, the dirty air vents. Almost every shot in this film looks like everything can do with a fresh coat of paint. There's a wire hanging from the ceiling. Where did they shoot this? Some random basement in Harlem? And the answer is probably yes. This is not a set. New York and America, for the most part, has been held up by Hollywood as this amazing place where all your dreams can come true. And the, Fr- and the French Connection turns this into a decade where this is not the case. New York is not the shining city on a hill. In fact, it's bad. It's very, very bad. Listen to the Projection Booth podcast on the French Connection. And there's a cop on that show that Mike White interviews about what it was like to fight crime in New York City for the 10 years previous to the French Connection. It was horrible. And you're talking about a 1,000 murders a year for years and years. Most of the murders weren't even reported. Crime was rampant, and not just in Harlem. Crime was not black by nature. It was everywhere. The ghetto was everywhere. Watch American Gangster by Ridley Scott, and you'll get a feel for it. But I dare say you won't get a feel as real as Superfly. This is KC, the real pimp whose car Parks borrowed for the film. He's up to priest here, and he has a medium close-up. It's pretty wicked. For the next two whole minutes, nothing goes on. Nothing happens. People jostle around. They order beer. It's mind-boggling, and it's like the plot is on hold. It even cuts back and forth to cover the conversation. It brings a certain reality to it, but it's also a time filler. The clock is running, and the plot is thin, that sort of thing. They want to make it to 90 minutes. They don't have a movie unless they make it to 90 minutes. This is Charles McGregor playing Fat Freddy, by the way. And if legend is correct, he was actually a convicted criminal who worked his way into Hollywood by standing around and being an extra. He was in the bar scene in The French Connection. And if he looks familiar, then you might remember him from Blazing Saddles, which came out just two years later. So... He's a criminal who went straight, and he's playing a criminal who went straight. And that's art imitating life for you. 
pull tab Budweiser's. So we see that Fat Freddy coughed up the money. Decades don't start or end on a zero. And if you look at 1970, it doesn't look like 1973. It looks more like 1968. And the heavy issues are all still there. Vietnam, race relations, and the two, they interact. Black men were drafted disproportionately for Vietnam. They served in higher numbers than in the general population, just like there's a higher percentage of them in jail. All this bitterness and discontent leads to black nationalism, black power, a black form of feminism. And it's one thing to say that this is pro-black or that is pro-black, but it's another to say that it's a rejection, a rejection of the white man, of white power, of white authority, of white money. All of that is key. And you see that in Superfly. There's no white lead characters. And with the exception of Cynthia, all the whites in the film are crooked or corrupted. The fact that Cynthia helps Superfly is kind of a nod, a way of saying, hey, not all white people are bad. And I certainly appreciate that. This is a pretty amazing scene. There was a love scene in Shaft with Richard Roundtree. I don't remember Sweetback. It's been too many years. I'd have to rewatch it. But this is really explicit. Not explicit in body parts per se. But it's what they do with the body parts I remember watching this in class and Ron O'Neill just absolutely gropes the shit out of Sheila Frazier's ass and just really goes to town on it. And I don't think I've seen anything like that in a Hollywood film. Sheila Fraser is an amazing actress. She came back for the sequel the following year, Superfly, TNT. Look at that slap. She goes right back to him. A lot of people have problems with that. Alex Haley, that Alex Haley, Roots Alex Haley, he wrote the screenplay for Superfly TNT, and they shot most of it in Rome. Priest in Georgia or out of the life, and they're fighting African slavery. Shaft did the same thing, only they shot the sequel in Paris. Not everyone at Warner Brothers was sold on this. I would wonder what color they were. And I bet this scene made them nervous. This was a black movie, and they thought that it would only go over well with black audiences. It's not for the cultural elite, as some would say. But it hit big. It, it took just eight weeks for the film to pass the million-dollar mark in two New York theaters. wonder where those theaters were. I'm guessing somewhere near Lenox Avenue. Warner Brothers hired black marketeers to market the film. And they hit the youth market hard. They recognized that Superfly was for the young. The old black folk really wouldn't get it, and the young are the future of movies anyway. Here's the grope. Oh God, oh priest. And there were people in my class that were turning their heads. 
when they saw this. It is rather shocking, 40 years on. And there is huge talent in black Hollywood. Writers like Richard Wesley, Bill Gunn, Lonnie Elder III, black directors like Stan Latham, Hugh Robertson, Ossie Davis, all made major Hollywood films. For the first time in film history, the studios were producing black-oriented films. Films pitched directly at pleasing a black audience that saw black characters on screen speaking in their voice or a voice they had not heard before because the power of cinema had been denied to them. And the power of cinema is great. It brought an attitude to the community. It brought aspirations and grievances. And it also brought a little bit of hope. The way the slow motion works here is pretty amazing. There's like a male gaze, of course, but the way that it seems to focus on the skin. And I'm, and I'm sure that was intentional. It's like, it's fetishizing black skin and it's showing something black audiences aren't used to seeing, which is black people making love. I mean, in a legitimate theater, not the ones in Times Square. There's more of that groping. And it really pushes this theme, right, that black is beautiful. And I think it succeeds, especially with this scene and with Sheila Frazier. I don't want to paint this image that before Superfly there was nothing and after Superfly there was Samuel L. Jackson. That's not the case. In 1970s, Hal Ashby directed a film called The Landlord and Louis Gossett Jr. almost cuts Beau Bridges up into little pieces. So black cinema doesn't start with Superfly. And William Wyler, right, he, he shot his last film, The Liberation of L.B. Jones. And this is William fucking Wyler we're talking about, okay? Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, Roman Holiday, Ben fucking her, Funny Girl... And this is the first Hollywood film in which a black man kills a white man on screen. And it's Yafat Kodo tossing a bigot's ass into a wood chipper. Full throttle. And thankfully it doesn't end there. There's a few of these films before Sweetback and Shaft. The Black Angels is one of them. But after Sweetback and Shaft, and those are only two in 1971, you have an explosion in 1972. Hitman, Hammer, across 110th Street with Yafat Kodo again. And that's the theme song to Tarantino's Jackie Brown, Slaughter. And this is also when black exploitation horror starts with Blackula and Blackenstein the following year. So we went from black on black sex to black on black crime. And who's there to save the guy's life? White cops. Notice Fat Freddy had brass knuckles on. And he's got awesome mutton chops. And look how that whole thing was shot over the shoulder like a documentary, like someone is following Fat Freddy around with a huge 35 on their shoulder. And this is activity that a lot of black citizens have ever been through or they fear getting hassled by the man. Only in this case, Fat Freddy is guilty. Now, 1973 and 1974 are huge years. There's 10 black exploitation films in 1973 alone, including some huge impact films, Cleopatra Jones, Coffee, Detroit 9000, The Mac, which is basically a super fly ripoff, Scream, Blackula Scream, which is a sequel to Blackula. In 1974, there's 15 films, Black Belt Jones with Jim Kelly, Black Eye with Fred Williamson, The Black Godfather with Rod Perry, Foxy Brown with Pam Greer, 
three the hard way with Fred Williamson, Jim Kelly, and Jim Brown, who team up to fight a white supremacist. In 1975, there's ten more. Black Shampoo, The Black Gestapo, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, Dolomite, Mandingo, and then the sequel, Drum. And if you want to know more about those two, hit up the Projection Booth podcast again. There's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. By 1976, things start drying up pretty fast. And by 77, we're in Star Wars country, and it's just about dead. Black Fist, Black Samurai. And by the 80s, you start getting leftovers like Action Jackson and comedies like I'm Going to Get You Sucka. And then the comedies go on with Pootie Tang and Undercover Brother and Black Dynamite. But I would say by far the influence of black exploitation you see the most is in Tarantino's films. It's in Pulp Fiction. It's in Jackie Brown, which is the best example and most direct link. And there are elements of it in Death Proof. You can see a direct line from Mandingo and Drum to Django Unchained. Priest Knows Kung Fu. There's a great documentary you should see called The Black Kung Fu Experience. It used to be on Netflix, but right now it's on Amazon Prime, and it's amazing. It's about these guys, Ron Van Cleef and Dennis Brown, Oso Tairi de Cassell, and Donald Hanby. And they're all Americans, and they're all from ghetto neighborhoods, and they were all empowered in a period of huge turmoil in this country, the civil rights era, you know, and the fight against segregation. And they committed their life to learning Kung Fu. And they learned from guys like Moses Powell, who used to be Malcolm X's bodyguard and was the first Kung Fu teacher to give lessons to the FBI. I'm sure that's an interesting story. And one of those amazing stories is Ron Van Cleef. And you've got to know about this guy. He volunteered for the Marines, was lynched, survived, sent to Vietnam for 14 months. He was a door gunner and worked a howitzer. I mean, this was one bad motherfucker. And he and the rest of these guys, I don't want to say they were radicalized, but they were definitely pushed by the environment of the 60s and 70s into change. And they all idealized Bruce Lee. And that's where all of this comes from. I mean, Ron Van Cleef, he's known as the Black Dragon, right? Like he went to Hong Kong and he made like 40 films. And he went from being this black bad guy to the black good guy over his career. He would shoot films in two weeks. He was the black samurai. And in Kung Fu, the only thing that mattered was how good you were, not what color you were. And that's where that scene comes from. And you should see how upbeat these guys are, how empowered they are, how confident they are. They're always smiling. They're always so positive through the entire documentary. They're just amazingly positive. They don't, they don't talk about the discrimination against them as something that held them down. It was something they conquered. You know, you think about the black experience in this country and what is, about it is positive. And these guys focus on that. I can't recommend it enough. Now, let's be real. How many drug dealers do you know and how many of them know Kung Fu? And if Priest is about black empowerment, then he wouldn't be trying to move a million dollars of cocaine into the ghetto to get rich off of it, would he? And remember this as you watch this film and for a second time, hopefully. Not a single white guy in this film is snorting the coke in motion. Only the blacks are. It's rotting their community. And that's a valid criticism. I'm sorry I got distracted by the Kung Fu. Sometimes I get off on a tangent. We totally missed Priest in Georgia by the fence there with that huge sign that says, Curb Your Dog. And I can't help but think there's this hard cut to Fat Freddy getting the shit beaten out of him. And it just looks like he's being beaten like a dog, like he's being curbed. 
Or maybe that's just how Priest needs to curb Fat Freddy. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. But the bottom line is that I think it correlates to the treatment of dogs to blacks. And it's white lettering on a black sign. I just don't think it's an accident. I think Parks did that on purpose. Curb your dog. Priest has an amazing speech here that really needs to be dissected. He lays out his options, and they're not too good. First, he says, with his record, he can't get into the civil service, which is a safe haven for African Americans, because segregation was not allowed in government service since even before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And even government contractors were not supposed to discriminate after that. And he can't join the army with his record, right? So this is 1972. Who wants to join the army anyway? It just left Vietnam in disgrace. Although there's so much dope was being moved through the army at this point, it's probably not a bad idea to go in terms of a career move. But those two options are gone. And then he talks about holding down a regular wage job and how he just can't do that. You know, Listen to this speech. It, it sounds to me like, to me... It seems like the best a black American has to hope for in this country in 1972 is to A, work for the DMV, B, drive a fucking tank, or C, sack groceries like Ellis Redding after he just got out of Shawshank. That's the best America could do for African Americans in 1972. That's fucked up. That's how fucked up this country was in 1972. And I know things have gotten better since then, but it doesn't seem... Like, it's gotten a whole lot better when I turn on the TV and there's another fucking unarmed black guy getting shot for breathing. Dead, just like Fat Freddy is. Or conveniently run over like Fat Freddy, disappeared. And if you think I'm being dramatic, look up Charles Kinsey, black mental health therapist who was helping an autistic patient who left an institution. SWAT team guy, Jennifer Aleda. Shot Kinsey even though he could identify him with no weapon and with both arms in the air. And when Kinsey asked the cop why he shot him, Aleta's answer was, I don't know. That's the world we live in. So imagine the world that Priest lived in, that most African Americans lived in in 1972. Quite frankly, that's not an America I want to live in or an America that I want to idolize or be nostalgic about. So take that, that 70s show. We're walking, we're walking, we're walking. Just look at the trash and the grime on the street. And this is a pretty surreal scene. It's like a ghetto version of Sesame Street. Just look at how it's lit. I'm pretty sure Oscar the Grouch is in that trash can with an eight ball and a single malt liquor. This must be a familiar scene in New York. Black guy getting roughed up by four white cops. Kind of reminds me of the Wailing Wall. You think they're praying that they don't get shot? Listen to the difference in language between the cops and Priest and Eddie. And I love the line here where the cop says that he's good stand-up people after he just told him he'd sell them coke at 10000 a key. And this isn't too outlandish. The French connection, the real French connection, was a real pipeline from Turkey through France to Quebec and into America. And even though it was going on basically since the Second World War, the biggest police involvement was actually in February of 1972, so just a few months before Superfly opened. Think about that. According to the New York Times, French traffickers moved heroin into the States using an army connection who turned on them. 
the Italian mob who was bringing it in from Canada was busted and hundreds of kilos of heroin went up into the NYPD evidence room. Tons of New York cops were bribed and the kilos, which some think was in the neighborhood of 70 million, was secretly moved out onto the streets of New York. The kilos were supposedly replaced by flour and cornstarch because really, after it's all tested, who's going to notice, right? So between the racism and the kung fu and the crooked cops, there's a lot of contemporary shit going on here. Frank Serpico was a New York City police officer who was trying to execute a drug bust when his backup didn't or wouldn't help him, and he needed them. And he was shot in the face by a drug dealer. And he was, at the time, openly corroborating with internal affairs about how corrupt the NYPD was. So there's a lot of people, including Serpico, who think the whole thing was a setup. Not too many cops were sad Serpico was shot. In December of 1971, right? So we're talking about three months before the French connection was split wide open. Serpico testified in front of a commission that the mayor of New York, John Lindsay, formed to investigate police corruption. Everyone knew this going into seeing Superfly. They knew the NYPD was corrupt all over. They knew the cops were bringing in coke to sell to black neighborhoods. They had a history of prejudice that they had experienced since birth. So it's like Superfly is the culmination of all of these things. It binds them all together, you could say. It's a collective experience. And in the middle of all of this information... We have this scene in which Eddie tells Priest, hey, you're not getting out. I'm not getting out. I want to work with Whitey to get more Coke so I can sell more Coke, so I can make more money, so I can buy more Coke from the Crooked Cops, so I can sell more Coke, so I can make more money, so I can see where I'm going with this. So this is the first instance where we think that Eddie is he's not going to go along with Priest. And let's analyze this deep, okay? Eddie is in it for the money, of course. Everyone's in this for money. If that were it, Priest would probably cut him a lot of slack. But why is Priest so pissed off at Eddie? It's because Eddie wants to make this cash and stay in the criminal life? No, Priest doesn't care about that. He knows that Eddie's going to keep being a criminal. So why is Priest upset? Why does he flip out? Because, folks, it's because Eddie is choosing the white man over a brother. Eddie says shit like, yeah, I'll deal with the cops if it puts bread in my pocket. He doesn't give a shit. The only color that matters is green, right? And that is not cool with Priest. That is definitely not super fly, right? The brothers got it wrong. And that's something in the film that I think is left out. So Priest is really about black power. Eddie crosses a line when he puts a white man's money ahead of a brother's loyalty. But hey, man, that's what drugs do. Just watch Boys in the Hood or New Jack City or Jackie Brown, for that matter. Beaumont's just some employee I had to let go. Gordon Parks Jr. was, like his father, a fine technical talent with still images. It's how both of them got their start, and that's not weird. Stanley Kubrick was a brilliant cameraman before he became a brilliant cinematographer. These still images are meant to convey something very specific, and perhaps they succeeded where a lot of the time he failed when he uses a motion picture capture. I mean, just look at these series of photos. They're, they're more defined than any of the scenes. They convey action and emotion and a little mini-story, just like a moving montage. kind of reminds me of the fast clicks that come through uh, Run, Lola, Run. 
it's only a still montage. It's, it's like a contradiction in terms, but it works. I think it moves the narrative along very well. And these photos are of one time and one place because they don't move. They're, they're finite. That's all you see. And this montage of them really conveys the point by point without repeating a tired Hollywood tool. Montages at this point, they've been around 60 years. Everyone knows how to use them. Audiences know what they are and what they're used for. Even those who don't go to cinema, they know. So this is new. This is fresh. You don't see this very often today. I've seen attempts to do this like the old other old color home videos in Raging Bull, for example. But I don't think I can remember another still image montage in the third act of a film like this one. I don't recall any of all. And putting more Curtis Mayfield on it definitely sells it. I feel like I've been cheated with the little amount of Curtis Mayfield in this film. So, rolling Pusher Man over the stills, that's a good idea. That's genius. And of course, you haven't been looking at your watch, so we're at the hour mark. Great job, really. Didn't even feel it, did you? Notice most of the black guys in the montage are blue-collar workers. White guys are all wearing suits, except for the hard hat. I always thought this guy looked a little bit like Lawrence Fishburne, but since Lawrence Fishburne was about eight when this movie came out, that's obviously not him. I love this bar that's coming up after the montage. All-American guy. This guy reminds me of Steve Rubin, the dude who ran Club 54. I'm your mama. I'm your daddy. I'm your doctor when you need You got to love this bar they're going to. Check this out. There's a wave in the bar and the yellow chairs, the 13-inch black and white TV on top of the phone booth. And that's next to a cigarette machine. There's a nice picture on the wall. That looks like almost every bar ever set foot in before 1994. Very wicked. And I guess this is supposed to be in Harlem. It looks really nice for Harlem if that's the case. Notice the bartender is black. I'm guessing then that the owner is black, the real owner, and the fictional owner, 1972. You know, people were still rioting when this film was released, and you think about everything that goes into these race riots. A huge criticism was that blacks were burning down their own businesses, but that wasn't really the case. Most businesses back then were owned by whites. When you get to the L.A. riots of the 90s, that was certainly the case. Black businesses really suffered. But in Harlem back then in the 60s and 70s, I'd be willing to bet that most landlords in Harlem were white. This is a pivotal scene, and it's kind of confusing. 
this is a black power movie, but Priest doesn't represent all black power, just his black power, right? And this guy comes up from the local Black Panther group, and he tries to recruit Priest into the cause, the cause against Whitey, and Priest wants nothing to do with him. Now think about this. The only positive white experience you've seen Priest have so far is the naked white chick at the beginning of the movie. So every white man in this film he's run across here has tried to fuck him over. So you could say that every white person wants to fuck him in one way or another. And Priest tells this local militia leader, hey, when you start marching down the street with guns and start actually killing white people because they're white, then I'm with you. But until then, get the fuck out of here. So Priest isn't against genocide. It's just that he finds the entire black power movement useless, powerless, because they're not facing the real problem. Priest is caught in between these words. He's trying to make money off of both black and white addiction. He can't live without both races, really. And so he can't embrace either race. He's sure as shit not getting into bed with a whitey, but he has very little respect for black activists. And this is a huge criticism of the leftist black groups that is pretty rare in cinema. Man, you got to love these mutton chops. And these are pretty fierce ones. They're like Robert Shaw's and Jaws. Huge, thick, I'm a fucking man type of mutton chops. Here they're looking to unload this million dollars worth of coke. And here's where the title comes from. It's not Priest who's super fly. It's his coke. Just think for a minute on what it takes for a black man in America to get a million dollars worth of anything. So Priest and Eddie are entrepreneurs. But they are entrepreneurs that have a very different perspective of what they do. Priest wants to quit. Eddie wants to make more money. But again, what can he escape to? Oh, Jesus. That's, that can't be. I Is that a core sign in the background? I've never noticed that before. I, I don't know what their logo looks like, but CORE was an acronym. I, I don't even know if CORE is around anymore, but back then it was the Congress of Racial Equality. It was a civil rights organization, and then I'm sure they had to have an office in Harlem. They were huge into nonviolence, and they organized a lot of the Freedom Riders in the early 1960s. They were hugely involved in desegregation. And man, that is wild that that's in a shot like that. If that's the same organization, it can't be a mistake. He had to put that in there, shot intentionally. I can't believe I haven't seen that before. I've watched his movies dozens of times. Jesus. Anyway, uh, Priest, what's he going to escape to? And that's a valid question. He's already said, I'm not going to work some dead-end job, so that's not an aspiring look into the future. Is Priest going to go back into college? Is he going to teach Kung Fu? Is he going to work as an advertising executive? These are not trivial questions. These are valid questions. If he wants out, he has to have a place to go. And we're here reintroducing Cynthia, so we're not surprised when we see her in the finale. And they're discussing this very point. He feels 
disconnected to his lifestyle, and he wants out. And this is a valid point that a lot of the fans of the film put forward. They say this is a message that being on the wrong side of the law, that being a part of the destruction of his own community is not something that priests should be doing. And he recognizes that and he gets out. That's one reading of it. So there are some that say this is a positive message. It's telling all the young crooks to get out of that business. Unfortunately, it's preceded by a whole hour of a very careful glorification process in which we're taught to think that priest is cool. He fucks white chicks, he fucks black chicks, he drives a Cadillac, he lives in style, he wears fur, he can afford the yayo, he tells both the Black Panthers and the white cops to fuck off. So by this point, most people are thinking that Priest may be the coolest cat on the planet, and this is the danger that you risk when you have characters like this on the screen. This goes back to the first Scarface with Edward G. Robinson, where they had to put a message in front of the movie saying, hey, we don't condone what he's doing. This is just a, a narrative of entertainment. And that was built with uh, Scarface, with that remake, right? W- which I would remind everyone is a farce. It's a cartoon. It's not real. It was meant to be absurd. And yet when I taught high school, there were plenty of Latino kids who thought that Tony Montana was the Pancho V of their lives. They thought that he was the absolute goal. No one was cooler than Tony Montana. There were Kids who had posters of them in their rooms, just like parents had a Via and Zapata up in their living rooms. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. And you run that risk of glorifying criminals. You make a hero out of someone who abuses women, kills his best friend, and secretly wants to fuck his sister. That's your hero. That's a pretty shitty Latino stereotype to me. But that's what Scarface did. And that's all he is. And when I was in high school, as a student, not as a teacher... I had a few black friends, and they were all into Superfly, faux show, and they wore white Panama hats, and one year a friend of mine came to a high school dance with a white fur jacket, completely crazy. And that guy, by the way, he's a Baptist preacher now, so the pimping and the coking must not have worked out for him. This is a pretty good conversation you should turn on the subtitles and read what they're saying. And blacks control the language in Superfly, and that ownership shows power. It shows respect between people and disrespect. And here, Scatter is trying to push Priest off. He's trying to wave him off the deal. And because they're using this language, Priest knows he's being genuine. Check out that scale in the background on the right. That's pretty cool. That's not unsubtle. And is that used for measuring coke, or do you think that's a commentary on the criminal justice system? Scatter's hat is pretty wild. I used to watch Live and Let Die, and I used to think, well, they're disrespecting African Americans because they're dressing them like clowns, all this loud clothing, like Scatter's hat here. I just didn't realize that the early 70s were just like that. That's just how people dressed, especially in New York, the fashion capital of the world. 
Look at the heavy rings. I think I mentioned that most of the technicians on this film were trained by Third World Cinema, which was an organization that Ossie Davis founded, and that company had a $400,000 federal grant in 1971. So you could say the federal government was somewhat responsible for Superfly and for the whole importance of the genre. And Priest said he would never work for the government. Now look at this. Since when did cops run around in Rolls Royces? Superfly is a good movie. It's not a great movie. There are some amazing things in it that I really appreciate, but it's not without its flaws. It is something that you can rewatch. I've seen it, like I said before, at least a dozen times. I went to go look for contemporary reviews, and most of them were positive. The one I thought hit the nail on the head was Roger Greenspan in the New York Times. On August 5th, 1972, he wrote in the New York Times that he loved the movie, even though it had, quote, minor blunders. As a director, Gordon Parks Jr. shares with his celebrated father a difficulty in managing simple exchanges between actors, a tendency sometimes to misjudge camera placement, and occasional weak reliance on handsome cinematography. But he has gotten so many more important things right, and in his first feature, he has made such a brilliantly idiomatic film that it would be ridiculous to do less than praise him. Superfly is a very good movie, unquote. And I agree with that. It reminds me of this show I saw on Netflix, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it, but it, it was about these two UK art dealers trying to help people track down a provenance for their client's work. A provenance in the art world is like a, a resume of the painting. You have to prove who painted it, who sold it, who bought it, and so forth. And so you're not, you know you're not buying a fake. And there was this guy that had a Churchill painting, but it wasn't very good, and it was unsigned. And the two dealers went to a small town in France to track down the exact location of the subject of the painting, which was a fountain and they decided that the composition was not very good. That Churchill, though he was a good painter, he didn't have a good eye for what needed to be in the composition. So despite his skill level, he was lacking this really important talent that a lot of trained artists have. Churchill was never trained, right? And I think that's what we have here. Parks has a lot of skill, but I don't think that he has a lot of the compositional talent. And that's not something that should strike this whole movie. I think there are plenty of gems here. Ron O'Neill, Carl Lee, Sheila Frazier. The sheer balls to pull your money and make something like this. This is ballsy filmmaking. It's really brazen. And the sad part is, if Parks had lived, I really think that he would have turned out some really superior stuff. I think the 80s could have been great for him. You know, there's this shot coming up through the coffee shop window at an angle and this just proves it and you notice the flashing red light that serves as a as a warning right parks would have been great i really think so and i 
I think he could have been what Spike Lee became. And I think it's just sad that it didn't happen. The only game you know is do or die. The day, New London, Connecticut. Tuesday, April 3rd, 1979. Nairobi, Kenya. Black American filmmaker Gordon Parks Jr., the director of Superfly and Three the Hard Way, and three other men were killed today when their small plane crashed as it was taking off on the outskirts of Nairobi, a spokesman for Parks Film Company announced. Jim Richardson, Parks' assistant, and the others killed were Peter Gilfillan, about 38, a Kenyan photographer, Miles Burton, a wildlife camp operator, and former professional hunter, and the pilot, Ted Gugis, a Kenyan. Parks, 44, of New York City, arrived in Kenya nearly three months ago and set up a local film company, African International Productions, Richardson said. The four men were on their way to a camp near the Tanzanian border for shooting on Revenge, a low-budget adventure film that was the first production of Parks' new company. Gil Fillon was a director of photography for the movie and local actors and stuntmen were being used in it. Witnesses said the single-engine chartered plane crashed about 8 a.m. when it failed to clear a six-foot fence beyond the end of the runway at Wilson Airport, a field for light planes on the edge of Nairobi. The plane caught fire and a passenger cabin burned. The bodies were burned nearly beyond recognition. The cause of the accident was not immediately determined. The only game you know is do or die. I want you to look at the fucking butterfly collars on Carl Lee here. And he's playing a double stack phonograph. That's going back. I don't think you can even get those anymore. And here's the big confrontation between Eddie and Priest. Scatter has been killed, and Priest is reading the writing on their wall. First, Fat Freddy, then Scatter, so he's thinking, I'll just split with what we have now with Eddie, and I'll call it. He thinks he doesn't need the extra million, but Eddie is just not there. He's not going to go for it. And here we have the great conflict in the black community between those who want to stick in their community, and those who are employed illegally to destroy it. And there's always been this tug of war. You should see Malcolm X or Boys in the Hood, and it really breaks this duality down. I'm black, I'm in a black community, I identify as being in this community, and yet I deliberately do things to destroy this community. It's a real paradox, not just in the black community, but in the Latino community, the Chinese community, You see it everywhere. And Eddie here is saying, I don't care if the white man is running the show so long as I get my share. And Priest just isn't going for that. And here's an element of slavery, right? I'll work for the fields for the man as long as he says I get to live and leaves me alone. 
But we all know that's a lie. Eddie is lying to himself because he can't face the fact that Priest is right. That in order to do anything about it, he's going to have to get out of the biz just like Priest is. And so the worst has happened. The white man has turned brother against brother. Literally, the white stuff is turning brother against brother. You saw how Priest is just staring him down. There's no trust anymore. I always thought this was cool. Always wanted a safe like this. Everyone should have them. Make sure and put in a loaded firearm when you get one. So, Superfly in of itself is not a super stellar film, but if you look at it, it's part of a trio, right? Of Sweet Sweetback and Shaft. And the three of those films have short-term and long-term gains. The short-term is that someone other than Sidney Poitier is working in cinema. Jim Brown roles in The Dirty Dozen, for example, they'll always be there. And the token issue is particularly bad in the 80s. But here in the 70s, you find Fred Williamson, Ossie Davis, Michael Schultz. By the end of this decade, Richard Pryor will be a leading man. Just imagine that. Silver streak, right? What is not possible in 1972 is a foregone conclusion by 1982, and it's because of movies like Superfly. You're watching a $1 million investment that kicked back $4 million, and that's pretty awesome rate of return. And who knows how much it's made in video rentals and sales since then. I paid 10 bucks for it on Vudu. And where is this all going? Why is Superfly important now? Well, just jump online right now and go to boxofficemojo.com and look up a little film called Black Panther. That is a film that a white dude coughed up money for, $250 million to be exact. And that film brought in $700 million domestic dollars in the United States, $20 million more than the Avengers Infinity Wars. And it brought in $646 million from the foreign market. So that's $1.3 billion that one movie brought in. It is the most successful movie in Marvel Studios' history. And the director was black. The screenwriters were black. And 13 out of the 15 top-billed stars in the film are black. And all that starts with those three films. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Shaft, Superfly. It starts with a black guy saying, I have an idea. And he puts that idea together. And as we found out over the years, with everyone from Dick Gregory to Eddie Murphy and Morgan Freeman and Wesley Snipes and Denzel fucking Washington, possibly one of the greatest living actors, what we found is the audience only wants a good story. That's all they want. And they don't give a shit what color it takes. They don't care. That's why I went to see Creed. And if you didn't check a shitload of other people went to see it too. I was one of those people who watched Bring It On. And I said, who is that Gabrielle Union girl? Because when she looks into the camera, when she breaks that fourth wall, it is a magical movie moment. You can tell me she's special. She has talent. And it's been fun watching that talent evolve over the last 20 years because we need to be conscious about race. 
because we need it to not matter anymore. New York City, where a black man can't walk down the street without getting hassled by a cop. So Eddie, the brother from another mother, turns over his brother to the white man with the full intention of taking over his business. And this I don't really get because he could have just let Priest go. If Priest goes to jail or just disappears or is killed, the result is all the same to Eddie. He takes over. So that never made sense to me. That was a smart camera move there from the inside of the cop car. You never saw the exterior of the car. Well, I thought that was Cynthia moving the bags. It looks like Sheila Frazier. So I take that back. She doesn't show up in the rest of the film. My bad. It did look like they shot that whole thing from the inside of the cop car, probably so they didn't have to show the outside of the car. You don't have to worry about it. They got the pointed cross for a very minimal dollar. That car door doesn't even work. You notice he had to close it by grabbing the handle on the outside. That City of New York badge, all that's phony, fake, looks bad. If you go to iTunes right now, you'll find the Superfly soundtrack for $9.99, and I think that's a, that's a steal, man. Take it. The title track, that's what's playing now, and it's great non-diegetic sound for this. Supposedly, Curtis Mayfield wrote the lyrics to the music while he was visiting the set. Apparently, he was around a lot, and the best track on the soundtrack is No Thing on Me, the cocaine song. You've got to hear that song. It really outlines a paradox. It's very at odds with the movie in a lot of ways, or the image of Priest as this Tony Montana-like personality that we should really idolize. It really breaks that down. Instead, it, it really focuses on the issue of who's controlling you when you're wrapped up in this drug trade. It really has a lot of self-determination and independence in it. And in a way, that sums up Curtis Mayfield. That guy started his own label, recorded his own music, which he marketed, and he sold himself. That's self-determination. That's entrepreneurialism. That's independence. That's black power if there was any. And you can see that in the hip-hop industry to this day. There's a lot of black power in the Superfly soundtrack. Probably more than there is in the movie. The fight scene. And some of you may not like it. There is a Sam Peckinpah kind of quality to it, four white cops against a black guy. If you want to emphasize the action, you slow it down. This is too slow, though. I was fine for the first time, but now we're four decades away, and it, it looks dated. It looks pretty cheesy. 
try not to let that affect your judgment of the film. Remember, these guys were doing all their own stunts. Richard Roundtree, who plays Shaft, he injured his back really bad during Shaft. He went through a window and he wound up in a hospital. So there's a reason why you hire your own stunt people. But, then, you know, they, they didn't hire stunt people for this. They, they did all their stunts themselves. And if, if that's a shortfall of Superfly, then it's still on the plus side. And this is a New York City cop, but he talks like some redneck sheriff in rural bumfuck Mississippi or Alabama. So, no, nothing's really changed. I like how he used the garbage can lid like Captain America, beating up trash with a trash can lid, kung fu fighting. And all these weird things that we've been talking about tonight have come to the fore. It's about cocaine pushers. It's about white money purchasing a black product to sell to black audiences to make money for white people. It's about the destruction of our inner cities, the glorification of drug dealers, the culture of poverty in our black communities. And strangely enough, it's about a kind of rejection of radical black politics, or rather the criticism that perhaps they're not radical enough. And the struggles inside the black community about money and hierarchy and who are you ultimately working for? Like I was saying before, self-determination and black entrepreneurialism taking out the trash, racism, a black man staring down the barrel of a gun just like he always has. And that hasn't changed. You could argue this is a Black Lives Matter movie. There's two deaths in this film, and they're both white on black crime. One thing I've noticed watching this is how Ron O'Neill is shaking. At first, I thought it was his acting, right? Like he's pumped up because he just got into this huge fight with four guys who want to kill him. And he just snorted some coke right before it, so of course he's pumped up. But I also really think that he's cold. There's not a whole lot of light in his shot. It's like they're working in a shadow. And I think the sun is going down and he's cold. And I love this shot on the hood of the car. Hand me the ringer, dude. They've got my undies, my fucking whites. Look how hopped up he is, and he's going to walk away. And where does he go? We don't know. But we're given a couple of clues. First, he says, nothing better happen to me or the contract I put out on your family would be executed. So does that mean he's staying around? Would that, that would be interesting to know if he's going to square with Eddie if he does. He walks to his car, right? And it's not the Cadillac hood ornament we see. Right, It's the angel with wings. We think that maybe the battle angels of his nature or perhaps an angel like Cynthia or Sheila is going to whisk him away to a better life. I don't know, but I do know the final shot is very encouraging. Right, We see him planning the whole move. He's going to get out. He's going to take the money. He doesn't actually wait for the money. He's just going to cut while he's still out alive. And Then as he's driving away, we watch the camera pan around and up to the top of the Empire State Building where it crops it off and takes on a different form. It actually looks like a needle. And that is not good. That's a bad omen. And it's really surprising to see that as the last shot to such an interesting and important film. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watch Superfly 1972. 
I hope you found this interesting, whether you watched with the commentary on in your home or just listened in your pimp car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis and find my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the year 2029.